Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the uh, first chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 25. And we're going to be reading the first chapter of Luke uh, together for the next couple of weeks in preparation for Christmas. And these are all the stories that sort of uh, come before the birth of Christ. Uh, It's the story of uh, John the Baptist being born, of Mary receiving the good news that she is with child. And uh, and so our our first uh, story that we'll look at is uh, Zechariah uh, in the temple. Uh, Zechariah receives a visit from an angel and receives the good news. And, uh, and we'll look at his story together this morning. So Luke, the first chapter, verses 1 through 25. Hear now the word of our Lord. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. When Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, All the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. 
and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. So, one of the things I love about Bible study is how everyone has their own perspective, and no two people um, see a scripture quite the same way. You know, we all sort of come at it with our own life experience and our own uh own things that the Lord has taught us over the years, and we come together and we somehow uh, meet in the middle and, and, and eke out a meaning. And, uh, and I've just always loved that about Bible study. Um, one of the things when I was a youth pastor that I loved about doing Bible study with teenagers is teenagers are never afraid to ask questions. We adults sometimes, we get uh, in the habit of, uh, of sort of censoring ourselves in Bible study and maybe not uh, asking uh, the questions that we would be rude to ask of God, uh, that uh, we might not want the other people at the table to know we're thinking about these things and, and, and doubting these things or, or whatever the case may be. But teenagers just don't have that filter. And, uh, and, and they fearlessly ask questions and oftentimes it, it calls me to look at the Bible in a new way because of a question that has been asked. And this particular story reread together uh, was one that I read with a group of teenagers a couple of years ago. And, uh, and one of the girls asked a question that really uh, just uh, got its hooks in me. We were reading this passage about uh, Zechariah. He's going into the temple. He meets the angel. The angel tells him this good news. And Zechariah says, how can I be sure this is true? And um, the angel's not having it. Uh, uh, makes Zechariah mute for nine months and, uh, until uh, the, the good news is fulfilled. And we, we come to the end of this reading, and one of the girls in the group asks, why does God totally wreck Zechariah? Uh, and, and I asked her, you know, unpack wreck. <laughs> like, what do you mean by that? What, what do you mean, why does God totally wreck Zechariah? And she said, well, you know, um, you know, all Zechariah is doing is asking a question, and uh, God flips his lid and makes him mute, right? And... I had to look at this passage a different way. To me, I, I always like just maybe it's just my uh, my Christian pastor brain, but I just like go straight toward the good news, right, and try to ignore anything else I see along the way, right. And uh, and so I always skip to Zechariah's song, the song of hope. This is what God has done, you know, and skip the part where for nine months he has to do charades, <laughs> and for nine months he struck mute. And so this question, why? Does God totally wreck Zechariah? It's kind of stuck with me. I think to answer that, we've got to, before we can figure out 
what God does and why God does what he does, we have to figure out what's going on in Zechariah's life. What's he doing? Why is he doing what he's doing? After all, he is approached with this good news and he's having trouble believing it. Why? This is the best day of Zechariah's life. Now, when you hear Zechariah as a priest, maybe there's this image that comes to mind, that Zechariah is one of these guys that walks around constantly um, with, the, with the linen and the ephod, and, and he's got this big pointy hat, and he just spends all of his days in the temple. That's kind of what we, when we're, especially when we're in the Old Testament, beginning of the New Testament, that's what we think of when we think of a priest, right? This guy is constantly in the temple, presiding over sacrifices, and that his whole life is about this building. Well, that's true when you're talking about the high priests, but when you're talking about the regular old priests, it's actually a different kind of a story. See, in ancient Israel, the priesthood was hereditary. Um, all of the descendants of, uh, of Moses' um, uh, uh, brother Aaron were um, the priesthood. And by the time of Jesus, that was a big family. <laughs> you know, we're, talk, we're talking you know, about um, 1,800 priests. And you don't need 1,800 priests to carry out a sacrifice. And so what they would do is they divided these priests into different divisions. And um, uh, Zechariah was in the division of Abijah. And what would happen was your, uh, your priestly division, there were 24 of them, um, your priestly division twice a year, you leave whatever your regular life was, and for a week, you would go serve in the temple twice a year. Now, that's still a lot of people. And you don't need all that whole division um, uh, bumping around in the temple together, uh, all crammed into the Holy of Holies trying to light the candles together. And so what you do is you would cast lots, have a little lottery system, and, and then someone's number would come up and it would be their turn to go into the Holy of Holies and light the candles and light the incense. And odds are pretty good that this was the first, maybe second time, Zechariah's num number came up. And so this was like one of those special moments in life. It's our week and... This time, my number came up, and I got to go into the Holy of Holies, and I got to light the incense, and I got to light the candles. This would have been one of the best days of Zechariah's life. Finally, he gets to go in and perform this priestly duty. So don't you know he's in there, and he wants to make sure everything's done right. You know, his whole life has been leading up to this. And he's just going to make sure he does everything so, so like a proper priest would. And he's really focused on his tasks. And he looks up and he sees an angel. Now, 
I grew up with uh, this show called Touched by an Angel on TV. Anyone ever saw Touched by an Angel? Right. And so these angels would get entangled with people's lives and they look just like us, right? Until like maybe at the very end, um, Roma Downey was talking to someone and this shaft of light would come on her and she'd say, I am an angel sent from God, right? And, um, and, and then you'd know, oh, she's an angel. That's not exactly the picture the Bible gives us. When the Bible's picture angels, they're like twice the size of us. And um, if they've got wings, they don't just have two of them. They've got like six or seven of them. They like, might have the, the head of a lion or something. Like, these are fearsome creature things here, usually on fire with swords, right? And so he looks up and he sees an angel and he's rightfully scared. He's startled. He's like, what is happening in here? And the angel has good news. I can't wait to tell you this. You are going to have a son. And your son is going to go in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he's going to turn the hearts of the children to their parents. In other words, back to our traditions, back to the old ways. There's going to be a revival across this land, and your son, John, is going to be a part of it. This is good news. And Zechariah's reaction is, how can I be sure about this? What kind of proof can you give me, right? I've got one suggestion. A big angel is telling you, right? (laughs) A big, fiery, wingy thing is is standing here with this big heaven sword, and he's saying, this is going to happen. That's usually a pretty good clue, right? That's usually like when angels show up and say something's going to happen. Usually happens, right? Most of us would take that sign, we think, right? Big fiery dude says, God's going to do this. You say, okay. But Zechariah, how can I be sure? Some kind of sign you can show me? I mean, after all, my wife and I are very old. And she's unable to conceive. This is ancient thinking, by the way. Back then, if it couldn't happen... Like, it was all the woman's fault, right? My wife can't conceive. That, that's ancient thinking, right? But basically, we've been having this problem. We've been unable to make it happen. So how can we be sure this time? See, to me, Zechariah is talking like someone who's been burned before. Zechariah is talking like someone who's built up this scar tissue, who has this disappointment. See, he's not doubting. He's got the angel. He's not doubting that God is talking to him. What he's doubting is that God is good for his word. How can I be sure? How can I be sure that this is going to happen. He's talking like a guy that, that maybe, maybe a pregnancy has been announced a couple of times. 
right? Maybe, maybe they've had something to celebrate a couple of times, and then for whatever reason, it's not come to pass. And he's been burned. And he's been praying about this forever, but nothing's ever happened. Yeah, I see you, big flaming dude, wings. This is great. But how can I be sure? See, disappointment builds up scar tissue in our lives, and it makes us hard to have hope. It makes us hard to believe in God's next thing because we feel like, well, you've made this promise before. It didn't turn out the way I thought it would. How can I be sure? I went through a, a, a moment like this where I had news that seemed too, too good to be true. And I just wasn't sure about it. See, my wife and I, we had these two beautiful girls. And then, uh, and then uh, we're, Crystal was pregnant again. And, uh, and we, we went to, uh, to the ultrasound and the same day we found out the baby was a boy, we found out the baby's heart was not beating. And Crystal had to deliver the baby stillborn. That was my boy. Right? That was the kid I was going to be able to teach to shave. That was, the, you know, and in my mind and in my heart, that settled it. It didn't happen. Y'all met William, by the way, right? And, um, and, and, you know, a year later, Crystal was pregnant again. We go in for the ultrasound, and I'm not good with ultrasounds anyway. Like, especially those early months, they say, oh, there's the baby, and all I see is, like, like the weather over Radford, right? I just, like, <laughs> not really making it out. But, uh, but, but we went to see the, the ultrasound, and, um, and, it, and they said, oh, it's a boy. I'm like, show me. So they showed me, and, uh, and then they, they printed out the ultrasound, and they took this, like, this big red marker, and they pointed to the evidence, right? And, uh, and said, it is a boy. And I would look at that thing. It would be on the refrigerator. It would be just like, Gosh, I'm not sure. I mean, that could be fuzz. That could be anything, you know? Right? Just, I'm not, you know, I just couldn't make myself believe it. Have you ever been through a season like that where, where you just, you had this good news and you just couldn't make yourself believe it? Maybe you went through several bad relationships, and then you met the one, right? And, uh, and, and then you just kept looking them up and down and saying, okay, yeah, but what's wrong with you, right? What are you hiding? Right, what's the other shoe that's going to drop here, right? We just can't quite make ourselves believe it when something good is happening to us because we, each disappointment builds up a little more Scar tissue. I think that's where Zechariah is at. He just can't make himself believe. Zechariah has reached this point in his life where he thinks he knows 
everything God is going to do. He, he, he thinks he, he already has got God pegged and got God figured out. He's reached this point where he says, well, this is the kind of prayer God answers, and this is the kind of prayer he doesn't. So I'm going to keep praying this thing every day, but I know it's not going to happen because that's not what God does. He, 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 he thinks he's got God all figured out. Think about this. He, he, his number has come up. He's going into the Holy of Holies. This isn't every day for him that he gets to go into the Holy of Holies and light the incense and, and, and be in the presence of God. His number has come up. He's going into the Holy of Holies and he's startled to experience God there. I didn't know you'd be here, right? He's going into the Holy of Holies, that place where God is supposed to be, and he's startled to find an angel there. I had no idea you'd show up here. He, he, see, he's, he, he's so set in his ways. He thinks he knows where and when God is going to show up, and he's, and he's startled by this good news and not sure if he can believe it. He, he's built up this scar tissue. He's built up this, this, this callus around his heart. He, he's drawn this moat around his life so that he can't be disappointed anymore. He says, God's out there doing God things. God's not going to be here. I'm just not going to expect him, and then I won't be disappointed when it doesn't turn out the way I want it to. He's got all this scar tissue built up. He, he's not paying attention to what God is doing because he, he, he's, so, he's so focused on his own disappointment. And so what does God do? He totally wrecks him. He totally wrecks him. Sometimes, sometimes that's what we need. Sometimes we get, we just, we get so into a rut, so into a track, thinking we know what God's up to, what God can and can't do, what God will and won't do, that we need God to totally surprise us and to totally wreck us. And so, God strikes a mute right there. For nine months, you're going to have to do charades. And, and, and he leaves the Holy of Holies, and they're all gathered outside, and he's trying to tell them what happened, and he can't. It's like, he doesn't know what to say, right? He's doing charades, and, and they're not quite picking it up. And he's put in, in this, this position where, where he has to be quiet. As the priest, he's the one who's always talking about God. He's the one that's always telling other people what God is up to and what he's doing. And now his mouth has been shut. He has to watch the plan unfold before him. See, God has humbled him. God, for a season, is teaching him humility. And sometimes, sometimes... We need to learn humility because humility makes the space in our lives for hope. It's a prideful posture that says, I know what God's up to. I know what God's doing. I know what he will and won't do. I know what he's about. And he's not going to intervene in this because that's not what God does. That's pride. 
That's pride to think, you know, I'm so wise that I know what God is all about. And all through the Bible, God takes prideful people and he shuts them up. We were reading about this in Bible study. Uh, Job. Job has everything taken away from him. And he spends this time in mourning and then he spends this time questioning God. Really, like, like a prosecutor, basically prosecuting God. Here is what you've done to me. Here is how you've disappointed me. Here is what you've taken from me. Now answer for yourself. Job says, oh, that I could stand before God. Oh, that he would come here in his whirlwind. Then I'd really let him have it. And of course, at the end of Job, Job shows up in his whirlwind. God shows up in the whirlwind, and then he's, he basically, through this long, beautiful speech, says, I'm God, you're not. I don't have to explain myself to you. And you know what Job says? I clasp my hand over my mouth. Right? Sometimes that encounter with God, that just shuts us up. Sometimes that's what we need. We need to just shut up and listen for a while. My grandpa, some of y'all met him like, like a year ago. They came to, to hear me preach. And, uh, and uh, my grandpa Nettleton was a uh, band director until he retired. And one of the things he would always say is a lot of people think the hardest person to teach is the person that doesn't know anything. And that's not true. The hardest person to teach is the one that knows everything, right? And some of us in our Christian lives, especially like pastors, right? We're the guy that knows everything, right? We know what God will and won't do, right? And we're, we can be the hardest lot to teach. Uh, I noticed this at License to Preach School. You get a bunch of preachers in the room and try to teach them anything, you get a lot of... Mm, you know, well, I read the Bible, right? And uh, it, it could be hard to unlearn some of the lessons, but sometimes we have to go through a season like that where we just throw it all up in the air and say, God, I don't know anything. Show me. Show me. I'll be quiet for a while. You show me what you're up to. I had an experience like this. Um, when I was in high school, we did something called chrysalis. And chrysalis is like the teenage version of, of Emmaus, if you've ever heard of an Emmaus retreat. And so the first time you do chrysalis, like you're the receiver, you know, you're the person on the retreat and you have this wonderful experience and you bond with the people you're on the retreat with and um, you only get to go once unless you want to come back as a servant and, and help other people experience this retreat. So I did that several times. And, and the, the first couple of times I went, I felt like my gifts were used well. I went as a speaker or, uh, or help play percussion during worship time or, or just something that I felt like used my gifts well. The third time I went back, you know what I had, they had the nerve to do to me? They assigned me to a prayer room. They said, Danny, um, this whole thing, this whole retreat, while it's happening for three days, we need you and this other guy to be in that prayer room, out of sight, out of mind, just praying for everybody. I have to be honest, 
I didn't feel like that was the best use of my gifts. Pretty good speaker, got some percussive abilities. Are you sure you really just want to put me out of the way where no one can see me just praying? You know? That was pride, but beneath it was also fear. That time in my life, 17 years old, if I was really honest, I didn't have anything like a prayer life. Oh, I, I prayed when I got saved and when I rededicated my life at camp. I had some nursery rhymes that I'd say, you know, at lunch before I ate. But like, like really just day in and day out praying with God, that was just not something I did at the time. And there was this worry that I'd get back there and run out of things to say, get bored, right? And I'm telling you, it was one of the best experiences of my life because me and this other guy, we were, you know, locked in this prayer room all weekend and we had to pray for what was going on. They left us these books with like written prayers and these prayer activities, but I spent the weekend for the first time in my life because I had to and because I had this other guy, like I couldn't just, you know, play Tetris. I had this other guy expecting me to pray and I learned how to pray. And I mean, I get busy just like anybody, but it was the seeds of, of, of a regular prayer life. I had to be shut up. I had to be humbled to be able to experience that, to be able to learn about God in a new way. And some of us, we need that. At different times in our life, we need to find the humility to experience God in a new way, to see God doing a new thing. A lot of us are, we're like Shlomo and Buzz. You've not heard of Shlomo and Buzz because they're not written about in the Bible, but they were there, right? The whole time that the Israelites were, uh, were being uh, delivered from Egypt, Shlomo and Buzz were right there. Now, Shlomo and Buzz, they were these, uh, they were these Israelite slaves. And just like slaves, uh, they were constantly uh, bent over and bowed down because their whole life it was, yes, sir, no, ma'am. You don't look up. You don't make eye contact. And so Shlomo and Buzz were just constantly bowed down, right? Because this is the posture they had learned. And wouldn't you know, they were there. They were there when the Red Sea was parted. And there was, there was waters, walls of water to their right and their left. But Shlomo and Buzz, they were bowed down. And Shlomo says to Buzz, what's so special about this? All I see is mud. They had mud in Egypt. And Shlomo and Buzz were there at Mount Sinai when, when, when fire came down from heaven and, 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 and the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments on those tablets. And Moses stood there and said, Listen to the Lord your God. I give you these Ten Commandments. But Shlomo and Buzz didn't see any of that. Their heads were bowed down. And Buzz says to Shlomo, I hear someone shouting commandments. They shouted commands to us at Egypt. How is this any different than Egypt? And Shlomo and Buzz were there when they, uh, when they crossed over into the promised land. And all the other Hebrew children were looking up and, and, and they saw this is the land that was promised to our father. It's flowing with milk and honey. This is everything we imagined it would be. 
and Shlomo and Buzz were looking down. My feet hurt. Our feet hurt in Egypt. How is this any different than Egypt? See, we've adopted this posture in life. And, and, and like Shlomo and Buzz, we just get used to looking a certain way. And I think this Advent season, God wants us to change our posture. And we're going to talk about over the course of these, these four weeks, you know, four different postures we can take that will help us have hope, will help us see what God is doing. But this morning, it starts with the posture of humility, of just admitting to ourselves we don't know everything about what God is up to. I think it starts right there. I think that's when we begin to look up, when we unbow ourselves, when we stop focusing on our disappointments, and we see what God is doing. We say, I don't know everything about what God is up to. Show me something new. Let me hear your good news. So that would be my first challenge to you this Advent season. It's getting busy. Right? If it hasn't started yet, it's starting. All the busyness, right? We've got more announcements than we have the whole rest of the year, just right there in our bulletin. And, and it's that way at work and at school and all the other things you do in life. It's just getting busy. And it's easy for us to lose sight of what God is doing in all of that. So we need to find time to just shut our mouths and listen, and to find time to, to, to try and look up and see what God is doing and the busyness, to make room for the Christ child, to be able to look up in expectation that God is going to do something different than he has ever done. I need you to do that for me. I need you to look at yourself and ask yourself, check yourself, do I have humility? Check yourself. Am I, am, am, I, am I willing to see what God is doing next, or am I focusing on all the disappointments that have come before? Check yourself before you wreck yourself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.